summer we're in a series called My Anchor Holds, considering the words of Hebrews 6, 19-20 that Aaron just recited for us, that we have a sure and a steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Friends, what Hebrews 6, 19-20 testifies to us is if we have believed in Jesus Christ, if we have trusted him for salvation, then Hebrews 6 testifies to us that we have a hope that is secure, a hope that is steadfast, a hope that is sure, that we're anchored into the very throne room of God, such that it does not matter the height of the waves, it doesn't matter the size of the storm, it doesn't matter the darkness of the night, or even how long the storm seems to last. That we have a sure and a steadfast anchor, that we are tied down, that we are secure. Because as we've alluded to several times as we've walked through this series, that Jesus told us, that in this world we would have troubles. And James reminded us that we would endure trials of many different kinds. So how do we walk through them? How do we endure them? How do we suffer well? Friends, that's the heart of this series, is to remind us that we are anchored always and forever in Jesus Christ, and so that we are to be reminded that there is a language and a pattern for suffering in the Scriptures that we find in the book of Psalms. It's why we've tied the book of Psalms to these verses in Hebrews 6, so that we could pick up on the language, so we could see the experience of being anchored, so that we would have some passages to go through when we struggle in any varieties of struggles that we should walk through. This morning we are turning to Psalm 38, a very unique storm which we will walk into. So turn there in your Bibles as we work through another one of David's Psalms. Psalm 38, a Psalm of David for the memorial offering. Verse 1. O Lord, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. As we enter into this 38th Psalm, David finds himself in a storm, and he is suffering. And the storm that we will see him in is different than many. Because the storm we find him in has been absolutely caused by his own sin. It's not an outside force. It's not an outside situation or a circumstance. It's David's sin that has him here. It's David's sin that has caused his problem. And David knows it. Look at verse 1. He is not hiding from rebuke. He is not rejecting it. He knows that he deserves it. He's not fleeing from discipline. He knows that he has earned it. And yet in the midst of this, he's seeking God's mercy. That as the Lord would rebuke him, as the Lord would discipline him, that it would not come from anger or from wrath. 
What we find in this 38th Psalm is David is being disciplined by his heavenly father. And he is lamenting. He's mourning. He is miserable. And for the next 10 verses, David will go on to very graphically depict his misery. So we'll lean into that. We'll hear his misery. Listen to the words he uses in verse 2. Your arrows sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. He gives you these pictures as if God is shooting arrows at him, as if the heavy hand of God is laying down on him. The hand of the Father is on him, and it is his undoing. Verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. You see it? He's, he's owning it again. Verse 4. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. David is pointing out that his sin, the weight of his sin, is even making him physically sick, and he cannot bear the weight of it. And he continues to describe his misery. Verse 5, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Verse 9. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it has gone from me. My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. You should see, you should feel, you should smell his storm. He is in an awful place, brought on by his own sin. He brings us back to that a couple of times. My foolishness. He is hurting. He is broken. And you might even believe that your sin doesn't impact anyone else. It's just your sin. But friends, verse 11 contradicts that myth that many of us might choose to believe. See, we might tend to think that we're the only one who could pay the consequence for our sin problems, but sin impacts absolutely everything, such that in verse 11, even his relatives are staying away from him. And it even motivates his enemies, verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Friends, can I submit to you that Satan very badly wants you to believe that sin doesn't matter? Satan very badly wants you to believe that you can sin with complete impunity, that it it does not matter, that it will not impact you, it will not impact your spouse, it will not impact your family, it will not impact your friends. And that is a despicable lie from hell. For sin impacts everything, and it will cost you far more than you realize. 
And it will impact those around you to a far greater extent than you know. We don't know the full context of Psalm 38, but there are many academically who would paint it together with Psalm 51 and Psalm 62 to put this the first Psalm that David would write in reference to the pattern of sin that he fell into, which involved him sleeping with a married woman and killing off her husband. Now, if that's the case, and again, there's a good argument, you don't just end in this kind of misery by happenstance. If that's the case, consider the price of David's lust. See, because that's where he got started in the run of sin, where he nibbled into a little bit of sin, and rather than turning his back, rather than repenting, he just kept nibbling into sin and nibbling into sin and nibbling into sin. He, it starts with lust, And it ends up costing Bathsheba her marriage. It costs Uriah his life, including the price paid by all of his relatives who would have lost a family member. It cost David the respect of the men who knew full well what he was doing when he sacrificed Uriah, and it ended up costing their baby. Now that's just a quick summary of the cost of David's sin if you accept the context. And friends, your sin may not be that expensive, but I promise you it won't be cheap. That's why, in regards to our sin, when we walk down a path of sin, we, who have believed in Jesus Christ, have a heavenly Father who is a Father to us, and who is willing to discipline us. See, that's the nature of this text. That God the Father would look down on one of His sons who's in a pattern of sin, and rather than letting it go, rather than letting it repeat on and on and on and on, God starts to lean on him a little bit. God starts to put a little pressure on his life. Why? To call him to repentance. And you see that throughout the scriptures. Most pertinently, Solomon, the son of David, who no doubt watched this pattern in his dad's life, would later write this to his son, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as the a father, the son in whom he delights. Solomon says, if the Lord should discipline you, don't despise it. If God should discipline you, don't grow tired of it. Because if you're being disciplined, it's because you are loved. It's because you're delighted in, as a father delights in his children. Jesus says to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. This is Jesus, the one who loves everybody, testifying to a church. I will reprove and discipline those I love, so be zealous and repent. Jesus calls us to repentance as a result of the reproof and discipline that we receive. And of course, Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
Are you taking advantage of him, is what Paul is kind of asserting? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's God's kindness. It's his character that is on display when he calls us to repentance. It's the love of a father. And of course, the fullest treatment we see for this is in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? The author of the book of Hebrews is reminding you, have you forgotten God's word? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. That's the author of Hebrews pointing back to Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, telling you, putting before you that God disciplines those he loves. Verse 7 of Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Confession. I was spanked a lot as a kid. A whole lot. And looking back on it, I deserved it most of the time. I didn't treat my little sister very well. I didn't always honor my parents. I wasn't always respectful of my mother. And so my dad would step in and discipline me. And his discipline came in the form of a fraternity paddle. Why? Because he loved me. And because he wanted to teach me a different path and he wanted me to learn that there are consequences for my actions. And so because I was his son, he disciplined me just like he disciplined my sister, just like he disciplined my older brother because we were his kids. That's the argument that the author of Hebrews is putting forward for us. That God the Father treats you like his children because he loves you and... If you are walking in sin, much like if you're a child who disrespects his mother, you should be, you should expect to be disciplined. You should expect God to care enough about you, to love you enough, to lean on you a little. And, the text would assert to you, if you are not being disciplined when you are walking in sin, If you are regularly giving yourself over to sin and sinning with impunity, thinking it doesn't matter and it doesn't impact anyone, if you are not being disciplined, then you should receive this as a sincere warning that you may not be his. That's the text speaking. That you may not belong to the Father. You may not be His legitimate children. That's the text speaking to you as a warning that you see throughout the book of Hebrews. God loves His children and He disciplines them. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. 
But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Confession. I spank my children. Now, for some of you, that's probably like jaw-dropping. For some of you, you're like, good for you. And I'm not telling you how to discipline your kids. That's another conversation for another day. I spank my kids, and I don't do it in anger, and I don't do it in wrath. I do it to correct the behavior of my children when they are in sin. And when their sin is slowly leading them down the wrong path. Let me give it to you this way. When we lived in Memphis, Tennessee, we lived on a busy street. And my son had a habit of running across the street without looking both ways. Now what happens if that happens on the wrong day? Kid gets creamed by a car. So I, as a loving father, watching this pattern happen, want to step into my son's life and say, Boy, we don't run across the street, do we? I have to teach the kid... You've got to look both ways or something worse is going to happen to you. Now, my goal in life is not to steal fun from him. My goal is not to harm him in any way. My goal is to help him see that this pattern that you're walking through of being inattentive to cars on the street is going to lead to your demise. Therefore, a little bit of temporary pain on your backside that won't be pleasant might yield to a peaceful outcome of you not getting trucked by a pickup truck in my front yard. That's what the author of Hebrews is putting before us. That a good father will discipline his kids. It says in verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good that we might share in His holiness. The goal of discipline of the Father is to be corrective in your life that it would lead to your holiness. And verse 11 comes to bear. It isn't pleasant. It isn't fun. It wasn't pleasant for David as you walk through those first 12 verses. It isn't pleasant when I was spanked as a kid. And it isn't pleasant for me to spank my kids. Truth be told, I don't enjoy it at all. However, I have a greater fear of raising undisciplined kids. Therefore, I'm willing to add painful and unpleasantness to their lives that it would lead to a peaceful fruit. Now this is the whole illustration that the Bible is articulating for us as an example that we would understand that God is a father. And that a characteristic of a loving father is that they would discipline their kids. This is what he's wanting us to see about our heavenly father is that he loves us enough to have a greater good in mind for us than our momentary happiness. So just as an earthly father will discipline his kids, the New Testament argues a heavenly father will discipline you. Now it is worth 
absolutely pointing out in Psalm 38, should you not feel like it is fair for David? Should you not feel like David's getting a a fair run? Should you just see David's misery and not understand why God isn't seeking to comfort him? You do need to realize it does need to be pointed out that the one thing David has not done in this situation is repent. See, David's done a lot of belly aching. He's done a lot of whining. He's done a lot of complaining. He doesn't like what's happening in his life, but it is not turning to repentance. It's not turning to him seeking forgiveness. It's not turning to him taking him to taking his sin to his father that he could be restored. No, he's just living in this belly aching, whining moment. We actually find that in the scriptures in a couple of different places where people want to just live in their sin, think that should be okay. And it's not. So what you start to see from verse 12 into verse 13 is David's heart begins to slowly change. The reproof of his father, the discipline of his father starts to have an impact on him. And we see his heart change slowly. And it starts oh so slowly in verse 13 with his acknowledgement of having a cold heart. Listen to what he says. But I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear, in whose mouth are no rebukes. You start to see his acknowledgement that he is in this calloused place. And that honesty of him before the Lord starts to soften his heart. It starts to move him along. That's the sense of an anchor that you find even in a storm caused by sin, even in his belly aching, he starts to move along. Verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. What you see starting in verse 15 is David waiting on the Lord. He starts to turn to God, starts to acknowledge God. And if there's something that David does exceptionally well in the scripture, it is to wait on the Lord. Even in the midst of a storm that's caused by his sin, he is now seeking after God the Father and watch him soften more. Verse 17, for I'm ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. And he ends by saying, do not forsake me, O Lord. Oh, my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So as this psalm moves along, we see him move from kind of a whining, belly aching to confession that we see in verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. 
That if God the Father loves us and His love is to move us to repentance, you finally see David repent in verse 18. You see his heart start to change. Friends, that's the challenge of this Psalm 38 is that we would recognize in ourselves our own sin patterns and the storms that we can bring upon ourselves by our own sin and not be naive to that. We could blame all kinds of people for all kinds of things, but can I just submit to you that some of the reasons we have challenges in life is because we're sinners and we don't like to acknowledge our sin. We like to hold everybody else responsible and accountable for the things they do without holding our own sin. And so what you see in this text is a father who would love you enough to lean on you, who would love you enough to not just sit idly by and watch, but would love you enough to step in and to discipline you as his child, knowing full well that that would be unpleasant for you, knowing full well that that might cause pain in your life, but that it would bring you to repentance. Because that's God's aim here is the restoration of David, the restoration of his soul. Friends, much of this psalm would have absolutely been avoided if David would have just turned to the Lord first. For I would remind you of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's where the gospel brings forbearance onto Psalm 38. For if you are a sinner, and we are, and if you walk into sin, and you will, that Jesus Christ has forgiven you at the cross. Now, we can walk in a coldness. We can walk in a hardness of heart. We can choose not to repent, not to return to Him, but as His children, we should then expect Him to discipline us, to bring us back to repentance that we could be restored. And it's not that He's not willing to forgive us. He's clearly willing to forgive us. He's just trying to move us back to Him, that we could be restored, that we could be forgiven, that we could be cleansed. Friends, we have a sure and a steadfast anchor of our soul that in any and in every storm, even when it's caused by you, even when it's caused by your sin, even when it's caused by the hardness and the coldness of your heart, we have a loving Father who disciplines us to restore us, to bring us back home. Let me pray for us. Father, we have walked through many psalms in this series, and as we look at Psalm 38 this morning, we are reminded that it's our sin sometimes that causes our storms. 
And yet you love us enough to restore us. You love us enough to discipline us, to bring us home again. And so, Father, we pray that if there are any amongst us that are neck deep in sin, Father, you'd lean on us a little, that you'd discipline us, and that you'd restore us through your Son. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that is readily available through the cross, through Jesus. Father, I pray that we would return to you, that even as we have a communion Sunday, we would take this as a time to to return back to you, to come back to a Heavenly Father who loves us. In your name we pray. Amen.